Hey, Shared History fans, a.k.a. Sharons, a.k.a. Sharistas, a.k.a. Sherry Potters, a.k.a. Sharonas. First of all, please keep sending us things that we can call you because we love it. Secondly, we just wanted to pop in here and let you know that you can now share your love of shared history with the world because shared history has some official merchandise. That's right. Lots of exciting things this season weekly episodes, guests, and now official Shared History merch. You can find that merch over at arcadeaudio.net forward slash merch. That's M-E-R-C-H if you're not hip with the lingo. Or you can just go to arcadeaudio.net and I trust you can find your way from there. We just wanted to let you know about this so that you can check it out. And now without further ado, I present our first episode with a special guest. Welcome. To Arcade Audio. Everybody and welcome to Shared History. History, it's what's for dinner. Speaking of what's for dinner, uh, we're all recording from the safety of our homes this particular evening. Yet yeah, we got a, a remote episode for y'all. And as if that wasn't special enough to have the first time we've ever done a remote recording be right now. It's also the first time we've ever had a guest. What? Ladies and gentlemen, I'm introducing you to the one, the only, Cassie Balschmidt, Chicago filmmaker and producer extraordinaire. Hello, hello. Uh, longtime listener, first time co-host guest. <laughs> <laughs> and as always, on the ones and the twos, the beats and the bops, though from so far away, it's DJ Rip. That's harder to do when we're not all in the same room. <laughs> uh, I assure you, it'll be fine. Uh, more like DJ Remote today. Um, I, will, I will be uh, much less present uh, as, in an effort to alleviate my job of editing. Literally. But sometimes... I can't help myself. You Literally, got to drop rip, a beat. Rip, as you said that, I'm sure a bunch of people were like, oh, there's going to be less DJ Rip in this episode. <laughs> Stop listening. Change track. Well, never know. You'll just have to keep listening to find out. Hey. Oh, man. So we're really excited. I don't know for sure if this episode is going to be the first guest episode you, our listeners, are listening to. Um, but it is the first one that we are recording. Uh, I just feel like that's a disclaimer I'm going to give you because Cass and I are dumb. And also, <laughs> this is going to be very confusing because we have your lovely co-host, Cass. And then you also have our lovely guest, Cassie, who sometimes goes by Cass. Wait, really? Yes, it's true. Oh my goodness, this is going to be... Well, at least we don't sound the same. That is true. We do have a little bit of different timbres and stuff. Yeah, so we planned that. Um, 
Exactly. Uh, I really practiced this voice um, just to make sure that we didn't clash too much, you know? Yeah, we uh, make our guests send in um, audio, audio recordings. I was like, you sound too similar. Start changing your voice now. Well, and in preparation, I did actually re-listen to pretty much all of Shared History again. Oh, uh, oh. So <laughs> I was prepared to, you know, like, make sure we are on different levels. <laughs> let Perfect. Me be, let me be the first to say, uh, I'm sure that Cass and Cassie are going to be on very different levels. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why you say that, Natalie. I don't know. I uh, maybe because you just housed a fried peanut butter and jelly sandwich before we hit record. <laughs> and I, I started pressing my buttons and I had a little bit of peanut butter on my hands still. <laughs> but that's beside the point. Uh, it's, it's not, not about, about that. that. <laughs> what it's about is history, y'all. And for At- the first time, we have someone else sharing it with us. It is truly. That's me, if you didn't know. Truly shared. Uh, so Cassie, we're gonna let you, we're just gonna rip the bandaid off and make you go first. We're gonna push you in the Ramp. deep end. Uh, I'm gonna mix a lot of metaphors. And, uh, what do you, what, what story are, do you have to tell us today? Oh, well, I have a very exciting one. So, um, as all of your listeners, I'm sure know that shared history is all about the history that we wish we had learned in schools. Um, and this in particular is one that I can't believe I did not learn about in school because uh, I went to school, uh, college, for filmmaking, and we learned about approximately zero filmmakers. So, oh, or weird. zero fil- female filmmakers, I should say. Oh. Um, except for maybe a little bit of, you know, Catherine Bigelow because she's recent and, mm-hmm. you know, won an, you know, an Oscar in directing, little things like that. <laughs> Um, small but today, achievements, very small it, achievements. Exactly. You know, only groundbreaking. <laughs> but uh, um, today I'm going to talk about another groundbreaking um, female filmmaker, Frances Marion, um, who was the first not only women, but uh, first filmmaker uh, screenwriter to win an, uh, two Oscars in screenwriting. What? First ever. Yes. Um, And she was actually one of the highest paid screenwriters of the 1900s, which, again, is saying something for the time. Um, And this was all during the forefront of the golden age of filmmaking. This lady literally wrote the first book on screenwriting and developed both the career and the art form of storytelling and filmmaking that we know it today. Um, And basically became the foundation of filmmaking and script writing. And she told stories about men. She told stories about women um, in varieties of relationships and uh, developed some of the first book-to-film adaptions by doing Pollyanna and Anne of Green Gables. Wait, she did Pollyanna? She did. Oh, my God. I watched the movie all the time growing up. It's, yeah, it's it's pretty... She's amazing, and she was there from... uh, the beginning of filmmaking period, because that's all it was. There was no audio at that point. (laughs) So she was in the silent film area, and then she was there during the transition into um, the talkies, which is, you know, obviously what we're in now, where we actually have sound with our our video. Um, And a lot of her writing and her screenwriting and the stories that she told came from... uh, 
how she grew up because she was born in uh, 1888. Um, good year. And it's a good year. It's a good year. It's got a lot of eights. If you're a big fan of eights, it's a great year. It's a great year uh, for you. <laughs> um, and she grew up um, with an older sister and a younger brother who I mentioned now and then won't talk about again. Because it's um, not about it's them. It's not about them. It's not about them. Um, and her parents divorced when she was 10, uh, so she ended up spending most of her time living with her mom. Um, and it's said in her autobiography that she actually spent a lot of time spiting her father, uh, who had left her mom for a young socialite, Ooh. which is... Yeah, it was real scandalous. It was like in the papers. This was like that scandalous. Natalie just did a full on like pearl clutch. Oh my God. <laughs> they know because podcasting is a visual medium. As we all know. Exactly. That's why we had to call you out on your very yeah. cute pearl cu- clutching. <laughs> well, I thought I thought it was going to be, I thought it was going to be, you know, something overdone, like like leaving somebody for like the receptionist or something. Uh, so I was it, the the twist of the socialite was piqued my interest. Well, it is super interesting because she grew up um, in a super privileged home. Her dad was actually worked in advertising. He was a big wig there. Um, her family friend was Jack London, who casual. wrote lots of you know casual. Like they used to have all these like crazy people around um which obviously leads into like her being able to tell these stories um that sounds like that sounds like a like a 1930s screwball movie like oh right i'm leaving for the young the socialite and my father disproves that's what that's miami story right there the palm beach story sorry that's a great movie back to you cassie sorry (laughs) (laughs) that's like verbatim what the um what the plot line of Palm Beach story is, I never get that name right, which is with the, Claudette Colbert. I don't wait, I don't pay attention to anything about Florida. If it's not <laughs> if it's not rip, it's and then I don't care about Florida. Basically Claudette Colbert um runs away with a socialite or something. Well Oh no no no, that's that's it happened one night. But she didn't run away with the socialite. She wanted right? to her marry dad. the socialite, and she dad. was trying. Yeah, and she was trying to get back to him. And then that's when she ran into Clark Gable. Mm. But it's not about. That. <laughs> if you want to hear that story, watch the movie. <laughs> yeah, because clearly Cass doesn't know the plot. Though it is very fun trying to figure it out. Um, <laughs> But it is actually pretty wild um, because things like her dad running away with this young socialite really played into that. As well as um, she talks about um, and she describes the high point of her education, Francis, uh, as when she was expelled from school at the age of 12 uh, for what exactly? Drawing caricatures and cartoons that, shall we say, were quite unflattering towards her teachers. And she was banned from all public schools. All public schools? Yes. They said she could not enroll in a public school because of these pictures. Oh, my God. I tried to find pictures of them, and I could not, which I think says something about the pictures. 
Isn't that in because we're just gonna tie everything back Little to Little Women? That's what Amy March is sending yeah. for, yes. right? Yes, yes. Yeah. Oh, well, we can talk about Little Women all day. I love all that day. movie. All day. Both of them. Are all th- I think there's three of them, but nonetheless, this isn't about that. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so she, therefore, was not allowed to enroll in any public school, period. Um, and so was homeschool, uh, which actually turned out to be a little bit of a blessing in disguise kind of situation because she developed polio um, <gasps> shortly after leaving school. And um, due to spending so much time in the house, she actually became really, really close with her family, which are just, again, a wildly colorful group of people. Um, Specifically, she became really close with her great aunt and uncle who lived with them. And like, for example, her aunt used to hold seances where then Marion would voice her dead relatives. What? Um, which I can only imagine must have been hysterical. <laughs> I love this so much, and that's how I want to spend all of my time now. <laughs> right? Like, I'm, I was... I'm a voiceover artist, but um, my specialty is the dead. Um, I like to give them voice from beyond the veil. It's kind of what I do. I love it, and I am so happy that you have found your new niche. It, like... Really, how many other people are into that? You and Marion. There's got to be, like, like your business, like, there's got to be a punny title for that, like, Beyond the Veil or something, but, like, with voiceover, like, a voiceover pun for the dead. Yeah, there's got to be, like, a ghost whisperer, but, like, that's different. You're the ghost whisperer. No, there you go. No, that's Jennifer Love Hewitt. <laughs> she will always be the ghost whisperer. <laughs> and I would never step on her toes. We'll workshop some stuff. We'll I'll workshop some stuff, you. yeah. Exactly, exactly. Back to Francis. So, yeah, her great aunt held seances. Totally cool. Um, And then her uncle was a retired sailor seafarer um, and would take her to the bars up and down the San Francisco Barbary Coast, like getting to talk to all of these sailors about their lives and their time in the red light district and... Like, all of these really interesting, you know, people who lived on this, you know, fabled Barbary Coast of San Francisco. Um, And it gave, and personally, I think that this attributes a lot um, and speaks a lot to the people that she would write about and the stories that she would tell. Because you can tell she has, like, this beautiful relationship Um, with people who are different from her, which as a white woman coming from a privileged background, you don't typically see, but she speaks um, with a high level of tolerance for different people of different views and different backgrounds. Um, And we know a lot of this because she kept a diary, which she kept tucked underneath her bed, which I think is adorable (laughs) and speaks to all of us who used to hide our diaries. Where else are you going to keep it? Right? You can't have your sister or your brother coming in and reading it. Because everyone knows those locks are bullshit and you can break them so easily. It's true. We've all done it. You guys remember that diary in the 90s, you know, where you used to like talk, you'd press into it and try and talk to it and that's how it opened up? What? No. Yeah. Oh, wait. That was, it was fancy. Wait, I had a lot of notebooks. 
I thought it you was were going to say, cool. I thought you were going to say, did you ever have like a diary that like you talked to and it recorded it? And I was like, wow, no, but that is so very Felicity of you. That's no, that's like the Kevin McAllister talk back thing. You and I have mm. very different reference levels. If you go <laughs> to Home Alone and I go <laughs> and Felicity. I go to Felicity. Which is hilarious because I did actually learn how to sew and embroider because of reading uh the American Girl doll books and Samantha yes. in particular was my was my personal hero. I loved her. Thank you for teaching me a life skill, American Girls. <laughs> Qu- quick aside, Cassie, did you have an American Girl doll? I didn't. Oh. No, I think my sister had one. Do you know which one she had? No. Oh, okay. I had Kirsten. Well, we're, we're also from uh, Chicago area, which had that huge... Um, store american girl doll place yeah so it makes sense that we would be really into it my mom did get dolls my mom got those dolls that you can make look like you Ooh! Ooh. she got one for me and one for my sister they were creepy i wasn't into it (laughs) i didn't ask for this life you did this to me but I am into it, so uh, if when you find yours, can you please oh. give it to me? Oh, I'm sure they are long gone. Damn. If I find it, it's yours, Natalie. Of course. Yes. Aw. <laughs> True friendship. I love it. Um, but yeah, so we got to see a lot of, uh, we got to hear some interesting personal experiences because she had a diary. Um, but thankfully... Frances Marion, um, by about the age of 16, uh, she was able to recover from polio. Yay! Um, I know, right? You did it. Um, we did it. <laughs> I want that on a card. <laughs> Congrats. You did uh, it. You survived polio. You did it. <laughs> Honestly, those people, anyone who survived polio deserves a card it's, and an edible arrangement. At least. Sure. Send one to FDR, please. Yeah. But did, yeah, mm, did he survive polio? I mean, he lived a long life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I'll give him a card. Post, post La- longing, successful life. <laughs> um, but because she was uh, able to recover um, at about the age of 16, Francis used that talent that got her kicked out of school to go to um, San Francisco's Mark Hopkins Art Institute, which is one of America's oldest uh, schools for contemporary art education. Um, Because, you know, you're allowed to be an artist back then if you're a woman. That's fine. Artist, teacher, that's cool. Um, And then during the summers, Marion would travel with her mom to locations like Alaska and Mexico, and she even hiked in the mountains with a band of Indians. Um... And through her travels and her schooling, she was able to polish her language skills, her writing, her drawing, and her music. Apparently, she played piano. She was one of those people where you're like, what don't you do? It's kind of disgusting that you are so talented. Well, she also, yep. it seems like she had a lot of time while she was holed up with polio. Yeah, got to learn a lot of new things. <laughs> I'm wondering how she like managed to like finesse her piano skills while you know exploring Mexico and Alaska, but maybe that's just me. <laughs> Yeah, they don't have any. They don't have any like portable keyboards. Yeah, and even if they did, do you really want to like? You want to just take that around everywhere? I don't know. <laughs> I'm gonna go hiking. Like Hold on, guys. Ass, I need to practice but... my scales. Yeah. Anyway, this is Wonderwall. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Oh my god. I was gonna say anyways, this is ode to joy, which would be more more applicable for piano, but No, I really want people to start I want Wonderwall to turn into the piano song that people start playing. Not the oh I found a guitar. I guess I'll play Wonderwall. It's always gonna be on a piano now. Cass, don't you know how to play Wonderwall on a guitar? I think I might maybe. I love you, but I feel like you've probably, anyway, this oh. is Wonderwall before in my life. Oh, you said, do you know, like, now? I don't think I know now, but, oh, I've absolutely been that person that pulled out a guitar and played Wonderwall. I have I have searched through houses that I visited and be like, oh, I accidentally found a guitar. Guess I'll play this now. I'm anyway, a monster. Anyway, Wonderwall. <laughs> no, I oddly enough played Ode to Joy. um but yeah so she so francis got to attend school um become an accomplished pianist apparently um but bum 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 uh the san francisco earthquake of 1906 oh shit oh that is a big bum 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 (laughs) like a legit bum 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 like Fall every yeah. Uh, the art institute gone. Daddy's money from the booming advertising in uh, booming advertising business gone. Dreams of going to college gone. Because I mean, like she couldn't finish what she was doing. Uh, so I mean, like I was headed to college in two thousand and eight. So um, I know those feels. <laughs> I we are of the are we are of feels. the generation that knows those feels. Woof. Woof. Too real, Natalie. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. But anyway, here's Ode to Joy. (laughs) Natalie managed to make the the earthquake of San Francisco in 1906 about her. (laughs) Yep. I'm a Leo. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, Francis, like the rest of us, uh, when you have no dreams of going to college, uh, she got married. Uh, <laughs> that came out way worse than I meant it to. No, but, it was nope. perfect. Yep. Uh, she couldn't go to college. And so she, at the time, like, if you can't go and get an education, like, there's, you get married because that's the next thing that you can do to make maintain your status and make sure that you are still a member of society and that you have connections, um, which becomes important for her later, having those connections with other people. And um, so she married her art instructor. Ooh, scandal. And super scandalous. More pearl clutching. Mm-hmm. And then, again, pearl clutching, she got a divorce. <gasps> Gasp. Uh, just a spoiler, Frances Marion... Got married and divorced four times. Girl. She was... Get it. Yeah. A regular she, Elizabeth she, Taylor. Get yeah, she... it. She definitely... Uh, was definitely not shy. Um, but because of this, after she got divorced, she was like, screw it. Like, I'm going to go out and do what I want to do. I'm going to strike out on my own. And so I'm she already, got a job. I'm already publicly shamed and judged, so... Why not just go all the way? Why not? I mean, and she came from, like, a divorced home, and then she herself did, and so she's, like, this is definitely a situation that she's understands, and again, plays into, like, things that she makes films about later. Um, And also probably a lot of conversations with her therapist. 
about probably you know, where her commitment issues stem from. <laughs> it runs in the family. Uh, and so she gets to strike out on her own because of this. And she works as a commercial <clears throat> artist for the Western Pacific Railroads and then also painted movie posters for nearby theaters, kind of foreshadowing what her future career would be. Um, and then something interesting about the way that film, the film industry worked back then is it wasn't necessarily the way that it is now. So not, right now there's a pretty clear cut way to make a film, right? So you get a script, you make some storyboards, you do, and then you make the movie and then you go into post-production, very simplified way, but there's like a structure, right? That's not really the way that it was back then. They would write these scenarios and a great way for women to make money and to become involved with the film industry um, was to write these scenarios and then submit them. And it actually became a way that a lot of middle class and even lower class women were able to uh, make a little bit of extra money for themselves. So they were Um, essentially like pitches? Yeah, they were essentially pitches. And then they, you know, as because they are only like these like scenarios that were basically short um, synopses that then the director would take and then the actors would almost improv, like the director and the actors would improv it essentially. Improv? Right? What? Can, Can I, I get, get a, a suggestion, suggestion for a movie? Uh, yeah, I mean, pretty much. And uh, it, it was both a, a good thing and a bad thing for women because a is a gr- it was a way to make money, especially to work from home. Like if you're if you are married and you have kids, like this is an amazing opportunity for you to be able to make money um, and still like have a home life. Um, a good thing and a bad thing for women, just like yes. improv. <laughs> I don't think it matters what gender you are in that one. <laughs> and it's more of a bad thing for your friends who it's... you keep harassing with Facebook invites. <laughs> Come to my show. That's it. Um, <laughs> it's all right. We love those emails. I send emails about it because Natalie's... I'm personal. Natalie doesn't have a Facebook anymore because probably of said Facebook invites from improvisers. Yeah. I love all of us improvisers out there. I get it. We all do it. But it's about people supporting people and women supporting women. Yes. Which is um, a huge part of how Frances kind of started, got her start into this. Um, Because as I said, she kind of submitted her stuff to local magazines, which published her poems and short stories she submitted to other places. Um, she had a brief stint as a reporter and illustrator for the San Francisco Examiner. Oh, she just did a little bit of everything, didn't she? Literally. It's disgusting how amazing she is. <laughs> yeah. As a writer myself right now, I, like, am, like, hate, hate loving her. <laughs> You're amazing. I hate you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's true. There's a lot of self-loathing that goes along with reading about Frances Marion because you're like, people are like, you can do it all. And you're like, but I can't. And then you look at Frances and you're like, oh. She did. Eh, she did. Well, okay. <laughs> she did it after an earthquake in the 1900s. Like, <laughs> yeah. True. Um, but after this uh, brief stint as a reporter and illustrator, Uh, She, again, kind of led into some of the connections that she would get in Hollywood. Um, 
because she started working with a photographer. She became a model for a little bit, followed by some small acting roles. And really, that's how she... really, I hate this bitch. I love <laughs> her. Right? I love her, but I ha- like if she wasn't already like dead a century ago, I'd be like, I'm gonna kill her and eat her talent. <laughs> <laughs> She's just so phenomenal. Um, and it was interesting for her because um, theater at that time was very much like a man's world kind of thing. Like show business in general, still fairly much a man's world. But Hollywood at that point was different. Ooh. Um, pre-studio era so there's a couple different eras in film history um there's like the beginning of silent films we get into the talkies and then we get into this era where studios really run things like you hear that's when you hear of like mgm really mm-hmm. it's coming in and the studios themselves would hire internal teams so they would actually hire a director who would be the mgm director um and things like that but this is in the pre-studio area era where women got to be involved in all kinds of activities on set. In fact, it's pretty much assumed and understood back then, 50% of Hollywood at that point was women, which Hollywood now, please take notes. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Like, I believe that the the percentage, uh, DJ Rip can can, can uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was like 3% of women directors in 2017 or something oh like God. that in the top grossing movies. Um, it's pretty it's pretty bad for women in the film industry right now. I worked on a film set where I was one of five or six women on a 200-person set. Oh, my God. That is insane, y'all. Um, which, I mean, is it's pretty... That's why it's interesting to read about Frances... Um, because she got to have her hands in all of it, because this was the beginning. She was there to help kind of mold and sculpt the industry into the industry that she wanted to see and, um, and into like the stories that she wanted to tell. Um, not to say that all female movies were great back then. Um, there's still a lot of stereotypes that were held up, but Hollywood at that point recognized that, hey, Half the people in the world are women. Half the people who are going to see these movies are women. We should probably make movies about women and for women. Simple, simple maths. I don't know, guys. I don't get it. (laughs) I think this whole, I think this whole women thing, it'll pass. It's going to blow over. Yeah. Yeah, I, unfortunately later it did, but that's a, that's a whole nother thing. Oh, no. No. Um... But yeah, and so this was in the point where we're talking about these scenarios. Uh, she would write these little chunks, and then she would get to um, write the write the scenario, then direct it, and then sometimes she acted in it, and then she would be a part of the cutting process too. Um, they call it, a lot of women were referred to as cutters rather than editors, uh, so as to not have to name them as editors. Oh no. There's a lot of misattribution that happens. Um, well, I always forget for that you reasons. had to actually cut the film. Mm-hmm. Like, I forgot about that. I don't want to think I about it because it, it sounds painful and tedious. Yeah. There's yes. also a bunch of misast- misattribution of uh, roles in film now. So Yep. Oh, for sure. For sure. It's a, it's a chronic problem that only grows worse as we go along. Oh, no. But... Thankfully, in 2019, it got a little better, but we're uh, still in the early 1900s. <laughs> we got a long way to go. 
um, but because the sets and the, the way that things worked back then were so um, relaxed, women could and did define roles for themselves in this new medium. Um, they directed, produced, and edited hundreds of silent movies. Frances uh, herself is expected to have done about 300 to 350 scripts scenarios in her career. The volume, which with like the Hollywood pumped out films in those early years is insane. insane. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, Jerry Lewis, like he, he started, was it Jerry Lewis? Yeah. He would like write scripts in like three days and then put them like, film them in like a couple weeks. And he was insane and just pumping those out. Yeah. It's, it's pretty phenomenal. The things that they did like in, and the way that women really supported women in 1914 was um, if you were already in the industry, you kind of brought somebody in, which is what happened to um, to Francis in 1914. She kind of worked uh, with and under this uh, fairly well-known director at the time, Lois Weber, um, and experimented with lots of different apps, uh, aspects of film work, um, just getting her hands in wherever she could. And... Weber was pretty devoted throughout her career to talking about social problems and social issues, which you can definitely see as um, Frances gets into her movies later, that you can see uh, Weber's influence. Like, because Weber talks about um, in Where Are My Children, a movie she made in 1916 that explored reproductive rights. Oh, wow. Um, and with children, yeah. And, uh, like... Shoes, which is also 1916, and The Blot, which is 1921, talk about poverty and its impact on women and women's need um, to have to get married in order to have respect in society and all that kind of stuff. Um, Or like you had your two paths, like you either went to college and you got your job, like got your job at that point, because we were starting to be able to do that at this point, or you got married and like those were your two options. I'm very glad that that's not how it is now. Well... Uh, people forget to, I feel like people think like black and white movies were all very like, I don't know, sweet and innocent and whatnot. They were, there was a lot going on in those movies, like socially and like kind of inappropriate stuff. And it wasn't until what, like the censorship of the fifties or whatever, like they made like, I forget what it's called, like code or whatever censorship rules about like what could be in film but they really pushed the bounds of that early on it's it's that's so true um actually censorship is one of the reasons in about the the 40s that um francis left the industry is because of is because of that censorship and like the fact that we were starting to move into the um more studio era but i do have a really cool story about her in 1915 um, so right after she had kind of talked and hung out with Weber, got her feet in the industry a little bit, she started to start feeling herself. So in 1915, in pursuit of wanting to have like an actual career, she was mostly just apprenticing under Weber. It was less like a job job. It was more of apprenticing from what I understand. Um, and so she took a gamble, headed out east to New York and New Jersey, um, which at that point was kind of the motion picture capital of America, because um, that's where it kind of developed. Hollywood was actually built in rejection of New York. Um, 
basically an FU to Edison who was running <laughs> the, uh, the industry in New York at that point. Um, but she moved to New York and New Jersey. Um, she wrote to several of the East Coast movie producers, uh, making them an offer she hoped they couldn't refuse. She, worked, she would work for two weeks without pay, no pay, on condition that if her work proved satisfactory, that they would hire her on a one-year contract of $200 a week. Whoa! Which is equivalent to $5,122.34 as of Google today. Girl! Per week. Per week. Get she, that cash. Get that money. She wanted it. Um, the first producer she met promptly dismissed her because of her looks telling her that she would, quote, be beautiful wearing furs and jewelry, not thinking about a lowly writing job. Oh, my God. Ugh, it's such a struggle when you're too pretty to be, to work in the areas that you're talented in. Guys, that's... I'm sorry, when's the last time you heard about a man who was too handsome for a job? That's Never. why this is a podcast, you guys. We just couldn't make this work if people had to look at our gorgeous faces all the time. <laughs> yeah, it'd be very distracting and no one would take us seriously. <laughs> It's ridiculous. You just don't hear about these kinds of things with men. But here we are in both 1915 and 2020, baby. Oh. Um, but uh, it did actually work a little bit, though, because her pitch caught the eye of a man called William Brady, who was the owner of New York City's World Studios. I tried to do some research on it um, and couldn't find too much on them. So if anybody knows anything, please let me know. Um but he had a soft spot for other fellow San Franciscans and was intrigued by her very checkered and diverse work in educational history. Um, and so he was like, all right, come on out. Two weeks, no pay. What's the worst that could happen? Um, during which Marion wrote revisions for a film starring the producer's daughter, so no pressure. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, right? um, but it ended up uh, earning the studio... Um, about a $9,000 profit, which is about $230,000, a little more, um, in today's money. So not bad for their, for their current times. Um, so she did this and she is all of a sudden now the highest paid scenario writer in America. Oh my gosh. Uh, cause she got the contract and she's like, please let me work for free. Oops. I made you $9,000, AKA 200 thousand dollars. Great. Um, now can you please pay me and give me an actual job? money, please money, please. <laughs> right. Same Francis. Same. Yeah. Um, yeah. And no questions asked. She got the job. Uh, she did her thing. So they hired her. And within six months, she was promoted to the head of the scenario department at World Studios, um, where in addition to writing her own films, she reviewed all the scripts that came into the studio, helped cast all the films, supervised screen tests, and directed, and just literally did all of it. She was a huge influence on, um, on just everything that happened there. Like, not even on the things that she wrote, she influenced Literally everything that came through that studio. They're like, we trust you implicitly. Do everything. 
Well, the fact of the matter is, is her track record shows yeah. she made money. She And not only did she make money, she saved actors' careers. They would send her actors who had dying careers and be like, hey, write something specifically for this person. And she was... and. She would write something for them that either turned their typical, um, like, Casting. whatever they were, yeah, whatever their typical thing was before, their stereotype, um, either flip it on its head or really lean into it. And she just knew what to do and would take people's careers and turn them right back around. Damn, Francis. Um, which worked so well for her, seeing as this was, like, the golden age of Hollywood. She just hit the right spot. At the right time. Francis, um, you are making me feel inadequate. <laughs> and I love you for it. Oh, I respect it's it. It's so amazing. And, like, it's, it's, and it's amazing that, like, again, half of these silent films are all penned by women. They're directed by women. They're acted by women. Um, and all of these women benefited from each other being in, in the industry by bringing each other up. Um, and especially for Frances, when she, her career changed, dra- changed dramatically when she became friends with Mary Pickford, who just insisted on hiring Mary, Marion as her exclusive screenwriter. Oh, wait, who's Mary Pickford? That name sounds familiar. She, she uh, was a huge silent, uh, silent film star. Oh of the time. Um, she was American Canadian from what I remember. I am pulling up my notes. Uh, but she, and she co-founded her own studio later. Um, she was quoted as America's sweetheart, the girl with curls. She was kind of, even though she was in her twenties, um, she kept playing like these really young girls. Um, but it played to her, uh, because she was really animated and a really interesting character. She, um, when Francis did, uh, The Little Princess, which was a book that was added, um, adapted to being a movie multiple times over now, I yeah. think there's like four different adaptions of like, The Little I've Princess. Of and it definitely wasn't like a silent film. Oh, I love that yeah. movie. That was the first movie I remember crying in. It's so good. It's beautiful. It's so cute. And Marion's version is hilarious. It's on YouTube if anybody's interested in watching it. Mary Pickford's version of The Little Princess. Very cute. Um, And quite funny. And um, with, because Hollywood was still young, it really allowed women to have more doors open to them. And especially middle-class females who were these strong independent characters who whether or not you went to college, could, you know, do something, and it's, which is phenomenal. Well, it's like, this was a wild, wild west, baby. Like, it's the beginning of film. You can do whatever you want. It's, it's true. Yeah. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. I just wanted to say it, wild, wild west. <laughs> I, I knew what was happening. <laughs> you can't fool me. Nah. Yeah, I mean, it it was. And by 1917, after being uh, more than a year at World Studios and 50 films under her belt, um, she went back to California wait, wait, hold to up. be time with out, Mary Pickford. Out. In a year, 50 films? Is that what you it, said? It was, it was uh, a little more than a year. Oh, yes. oh, okay. We'll do that. Yeah, that's more time than to make. 
a little more than a year. That's in the yeah, yeah, yeah. I wasn't joking when she said she had her hands in just all of it. <laughs> um, but she was paid about $50,000 a year in today's money writing films for Pickford to showcase her strength and provide um, a variety of roles for Pickford. Um, and she ended up doing, throughout the 1920s, working for a number of different companies, including Goldwyn Pictures, which eventually became the big-touted um, MGM, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, uh, and Fox Films. And she adapted tons of novels for films, which is uh, obviously a new thing since it's a new era anyways. Uh, Anne of Green Gables, Pollyanna, Stella Davis, The Scarlet Letter. Some of them did marry, some of them did not. Um... But she wrote for pretty much all of the big guys at the time and um, transitioned a lot of those silent film stars into the talking era of film. And she was responsible for being, helping them with that transition into the talkies because that was hard for a lot of silent film people who yeah. were saying that, like, this isn't going to catch on. People don't want to hear our voices. And, well, and it turns in, out they did. In some cases, people did not want to hear those actors' voices. because <laughs> They did not. It's a whole other thing with, like, figuring out your uh, casting as an actor is that, like, your face and your headshot might say one thing, but, like, your voice, says, like, changes what that is completely. Yeah, oh, totally. totally, guys. Yeah. <laughs> like, I have a uh, resting bitch face, uh, but I'm just too nice. Right, everyone? Like, right? totally. Like, you just can't believe me. I have resting I, sad face. That's true. I love you, but it's true. I, I, <laughs> I took a screenwriting class in college, and my professor came in one day, and it's a really small class, and he's walking past me and just kind of stops. And he turns and goes, you doing okay, Cass? I was like, oh, yeah, he's aw. like, you just look sad. And I was like, well, thank aw. you for announcing it to the class, sir. Like, I was fine, but now I'm But sad. now I'm just going through existential dread. Aw. <laughs> well, it, Francis didn't have that problem, seeing as she uh, was just like, oh, I'll just model on the side. It's Casual. fine. It's fine. I'm, I'm cool like that. I love this job. You know that I love it because I'm too pretty to do it. <laughs> So. I mean, she she much preferred being in charge and behind the screen. That is for oh, sure. Oh, girl if, wanted like, to work. Yeah, if over 300 scripts and 130 produced films doesn't say something about how her career was, like, I mean, behind the scenes, I, I, I don't know what does. Because she saw people like... Um, People like Greta Garbo uh, debut in the talkies, which became the highest grossing film of 1930. And she is touted as reviving the quote by several newspapers on life support career of Marie Dressler um, that same year by pairing her with Wallace Berry um, in Men and Bill, earning Dressler the Academy Award. Ooh. So she was just so good at like making these um, stories for actors and bringing them back. Um, she won an Oscar for her screenplay called The Big House for its, quote, savagely realistic depiction of prison life. Oh, wow. In 1930 and in the next year became the first person to win two Academy Awards, this time for The Champ, um, with Wallace Beery and a very young Jackie Cooper, which is about, and yeah, and lots of other ones, too. And she talked about um, in Letty, 
um, about struggles for dignity and abusive relationships. And then she spoke out about censorship throughout her career. Um, women in the workplace. She was a suffragette. Um, and just completely rocked Hollywood off its feet. Natalie and I both, as soon as we said, you said suffragette, we're just like, mm-hmm. Yeah. We're like mm-hmm. nodding our heads. Get it. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. So were her first two, were for her, you said two Oscars back to back. Yes. So were those four the first two Academy Awards? Because Academy, the first Academy Awards were in 20... 19. Oh. They weren't the the first Academy Awards, but they were certainly some of the earliest ones. Oh, yeah. I just meant from, like, like timeline perspective of when she was winning them, if they happened to be the very first ones. Um, I looked up when... I don't know if this is... uh, uh, I know that that Rip is juggling things other than the beats right now. So I looked up... um, the, the how many percentage of directors what percentage of directors in uh 2017 2018 uh were women this is not of like the best films but it's just like 30 basically 30 percent on average there's just been like 30 percent of directors are women uh and then is it the motion picture association of america is are they who do the censor ship MP- mpaa yeah yeah if that's what they're responsible for oh yeah no, no i just yeah that's that's who's responsible for it so it's 1922 so you said that she because you mentioned that she like didn't like that them or didn't like that that became as oh yeah trouble. she was huge against it because i mean well because they're probably basically... censoring things like you can't say vagina or stuff like that. Which everyone knows the earliest films just ran rampant with the word vagina in them. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. It was it was nothing but that. I remember in the, the movie where the train's coming towards the screen, everyone's like, vagina. <laughs> it was it, I was gonna say funny, it's a funny word to see written too, so they used it a lot in yeah. silent films. Yeah, and when the rocket uh, hit the moon in the eye, everyone was just vagina. like, Vagina! Vagine, because it was French. Oh, right, right. Um, <laughs> Vagine. Uh, so the specific uh, uh, figure, uh, number uh, that Cassie was uh, referencing in 2017, for, in the top 100 grossing films, uh, women comprised 8% of the directors. That's from uh, womeninhollywood.com. Um, and there's all sorts of figures. They break it down every year, everything you can think of behind the scenes on, on screen, everything, mm-hmm. uh, really, really good resource. But it's because in 2017, there were just like so many beautiful women who are just like too pretty to direct. Y'all, it was a, it was a beauty boom. There are too many. We all looked our best in 2017. Okay. Boomers. That, that's what they mean, <laughs> right? Yeah. Too many pretty people. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I think of pretty people, I think of the boomers. <laughs> yeah. And we just need to stop censoring that. Yes. Yeah. Which is, which is uh, you know, exactly what you're, you're talking about before. Um, but, like, she spoke out against censorship. And by the late 1930s, early 40s, Frances uh, claimed that being a screenwriter was, quote, like writing on the sand of the wind blowing. Oh, oh, she was a poet. She, yes. 
Um, and said it was a profession that offered no creative control anymore and little credit for anyone less than a writer-producer. Um, so then in 1946, after a lucrative career and four marriages, uh, Frances Marion simply walked away from Hollywood. She became disillusioned from watching it shift from an artistic creative business to a purely commercial pursuit. Girl, preach. Which is interesting based because she literally walked in as like, I'll make you money, give me a bunch. It's true. Uh, but, I mean, that was because they offered her the ability to write what she wanted yeah. and to have the creative control that she wanted to. As soon as that control is taken away, it becomes not fun or lucrative anymore because yeah. you're no longer telling the stories that resonate with people. Well, you're also not like, going to make good stories if people are telling you to if limit you're yourself. Too much on the bo- and if you're focused too much on the bottom line the entire time. Yeah, because then you're trying I'd to argue. please yeah. everyone and you're not going to please anyone. Exactly. <laughs> reboots. <laughs> I have a personal vendetta against reboots and remakes. Oh, I fucking hate it. Uh, I have a personal vendetta against most sequels. Um, but you know, the jury's still out because I still haven't watched Balto too, and I've heard that it slaps. So. <laughs> what did they make a? All right, everybody run? doing shared. Hmm? What? Oh, I'm talking about Balto too. Did they make a second run? But. It's not about Balto for once. It's not once. about Balto. Uh, I was going to say, everybody who's doing a shared history drinking game, please take a drink for talking about Balto. <gasps> yeah, we should really add that as a rule. Oh, my God. There's been a lot of... <laughs> I haven't really sang. I sang a few times. Movie references, is that? I mean, it should be. Oh, well, we're hitting hard. I was going to say, that, this is going to be a heavy drinking episode. Good luck. Oh, dear. Oh, I do not recommend. <laughs> we recommend uh, responsible drinking only on this podcast. Always. Um, but yeah, so she basically, Francis got upset about the creative control being taken away from her. And uh, the censorship guidelines that were now being applied to major studios, such as women's legs could not be shown above the knee. Married couples were not uh, to be seen in a double bed. Love scenes could no longer suggest of sex. I don't know how you do a love scene without a suggestion of sex, but here we go. I'm so confused. The mental gymnastics to be to do that are like my brain is not computing. Like, what is it? Well, then? so I so because they would do a lot of like um, panning aways to like clocks or whatever, or like like we're slowly going mm-hmm. to. Oh, and now. We're, we're still here and like weird time jumps. Wonder what we yeah. were doing. And like, even if you go and look at um, like the Dick Van Dyke show, for example, which is a, a huge show, it's my favorite go to I'm sick show. Like, if I'm sick, I turn on Dick Van Dyke because it's hilarious mm-hmm. and sweet. And they sleep in separate beds. They have two twin beds in the same room <laughs> him and his wife, on screen wife. <laughs> um, but I mean, it really does constrict you from telling good stories. And Frances herself said that she considered them simplistic and infantile. Um, And with this new system, uh, this new top-down system, rather than writing, you know, systems from the bottom up, um, it resulted in a series of ongoing problems, including threats to creative autonomy and a struggle, especially with low salaries, because all of a sudden you're paying these high producers 
um, the money to make these films rather than the writers who were the ones who were bringing it up. And the industry was becoming more divided. You were getting a lot more, um, I am a sound person. I am a this. I am a this. So with that, you lose creative control because you're not doing it all yourself. Um, and so Marianne and Mary Pickford were frustrated and they left. Um, and Mary herself was uh, annoyed with her, quote, eternal child character and endless happy ending studios demanded. And because they weren't making good money anymore, they just decided it wasn't worth it. Um, they made their own studios, which did okay. Um, but... Uh, it was also hard to find work because if you aren't credited accurately in your films, people aren't going to know what you did and what you didn't do, mm -hmm. which is a huge problem if you go back and look at film history now to figure out who did actually work on those films. Because they would sometimes, they would oftentimes talk about the actors, sometimes talk about like the studio, but didn't always do the rest of the people who worked on them. And in terms of um, contributors, sometimes the writer would be overruled in terms of writing by, like, if they did an adaption of a book, they would just put the book author's name rather than the person who adapted the script oh. for the screen. Which, I mean, is nice to, to you know, credit the book because, I mean, obviously the source material came from somewhere, but then the writers weren't getting the credits. And if you had a team of writers, the way that they would often do it was whoever was the last person to turn in the final script, um, no matter how little that change was or whoever that was, like no matter what their role, I'd be writing the, end, turned it at in the last. end of every script. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I mean, and that's what they, and that's what they did. And so the end period, give me my Oscar. <laughs> Money, please. I did it. Ben, Hur, I wrote it. Chariots <laughs> of fire. I wrote it. Wait, no, that's a song. No, that's a movie. It just came out okay. in the 1980s. That's fine. Yeah. Big, big time it. span there. Didn't you know I wrote it? Between Ben-Hur and Chariots of Fire. Yeah. Similar. Fanny Pemberton and I wrote both of them, but she doesn't get any credit because I wrote the end. <laughs> Literally. I mean, it, it, that's the way that it worked. And as a result of that being the system... The woman who literally wrote the first textbook on Hollywood screenwriting in 1937, How to Write and Sell Film Stories, even taught screenwriting at the University of Southern California, just fell out of the mainstream and pretty much out of film history. Because um, a lot, and she's not the only woman to do that, because a lot of women really didn't make the transition to sound very well. Um, partially because of the way that the, the business was changing um, and partially the way that the technology was changing but because it was now write, a tech field. Well, and you had to write for dialogue as well from a yeah. writing perspective versus not having to write dialogue. Yeah. And Marion herself said that um, writing during that time was like Penelope, knitting stories all day just to have somebody else unravel your work at night. <gasps> Great ref. Um it was yeah it was it was definitely wild out there and i mean it just because it became such a centralized producer system um it pushed women from their positions of power and left very little room for both independent and collaborative working culture that the women were used to um she notes that the changes were affecting 
predominantly producers, directors, and editors, and women as screenwriters continued to work kind of in sound. But again, just the transition was so different. Um, it was hard to make that to make that change. Um, so, but thankfully, the women like this were able to leave their mark. Obviously, in see like things that we got to see from um, Lois Weber, her her mentor, and from uh, Marion herself, they were able to really concrete make make concrete the language of the craft and of uh, screenwriting. Writing. They were a huge part in legitimizing writing for the screen as a new medium when uh, at a time when screenwriting was not a discipline and only beginning to be a business. Uh, they after, offered constructive views on the art of photoplay writing. Um, they often spoke in magazines about screenwriting and were huge in just teaching other people about screenwriting, you know, both for themselves um, to help other people, but like, you know, the, when you teach, you learn yourself because it forces you to <clears throat> consider and think about the way that you're teaching about it um, and whether your views are even right. Because if you're putting it into practice like that and trying to teach somebody that, they're going to ask you questions and you're going to be like, did I do this Ooh, right? Maybe that's not a great idea. <laughs> maybe this isn't a great idea. That's how Cass and I learn while doing this podcast is by asking each other questions while we're telling a story and discovering the gaps in our own research. Um, <laughs> uh, rip. A lot of that. A lot of that going on. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I read my. I, I read a lot of this out loud uh, to my husband to be like, "Hey, did does this make sense? Did I did I do it? <laughs> Please." <laughs> Did I do a history? You did it. Did I do a history? It, and, yeah, and I mean, thankfully, um, we have people like Francis Marion to to thank for our, our ability to storytell, and I personally can thank Francis Marion for uh, being a wonderful, wonderful show of all the different things that you can do in the in the industry. Yeah. And um, hey, Hollywood, hire women, please. Hey. Yeah. And Cass can thank Frances Marion for teaching her how to feel with the little princess. Oh. Also, when you said she did Pollyanna, I was thinking of the one in, like, was it with Haley Mills? That, like, like Disney's studios did in, like, the 60s. They were doing all those, like, live action mm. ones. And then, and then you're, like, early 1900s is like, oh, nope, different one. Probably not that one. <laughs> yeah, the 1995 one, is that what we're talking about? No, maybe. I thought there was one that came out in, like, the 60s. Oh, probably. There are, like, a bajillion versions yeah, of this. Yeah, that would make now sense. Now that I, I just pulled up the Wikipedia, and there is many. Oh, yeah. <laughs> many, many. Well, many, many. man, Frances Marion, what a yeah. woman. She was, you know what? She was too pretty for the history books. Yeah. That's what we've learned here today. And so we She's- just have to remember her... Not unlike film, the visual medium of podcasting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Super visual medium. Yeah. You're like the opposite of a silent film. <laughs> we are just a talkie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think it's important to remember and to like learn about where our history came from. Because as I said, like I went to college for film and did not learn about this lady. Yeah. Like, the you know, if. Well, I have my own quips about the school I went to, but 
and how it does not matter in my industry. But uh, it is it is important to know where you came from because by learning about her and the things that these women went through and the way that these women pushed through their own glass ceilings can relate to how we can push through our own glass ceilings now and how we can grow and change and um, make the industry better and tell better stories because that's what we're here to do. Well, and it's it's like what you said earlier, 9% of female directors, whatnot. And it's really daunting to be like, give women you know, more responsibility and more jobs and whatnot. And you're like, but we have this whole history of no one giving us jobs and no one taking us seriously. And it's kind of like a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel to be like, oh no, it was, it was good. Let's do that again. And like, yeah, that little bit of hope. I just hope we don't have to uh, go back to the precedent of offering to work for free for two weeks. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> seriously. <I've... sighs> um. Hey, but then she became the highest paid filmmaker after, or screenwriter after two weeks, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, but that means we all have to be really, really good at what we do then. (laughs) That's true. It it doesn't allow for a lot of growth opportunity. Yeah. It also, it also like kind of irks me because as you were describing all of her amazing talents and all of the different areas that she dabbled in and really excelled in and, and what, and that she could basically like play the piano while tap dancing and spinning plates or whatever all at the same time um, that you know that she had to do that in order to really get a foot in the door whereas like Chuck was just someone's nephew and he was like give me a film deal I'm Chuck yeah which is a huge part which is a huge part of the industry today of like these are the struggles that women filmmakers have to deal with is Um, you're not even competing against people who are growing in the industry and who are new to the industry like me. You're competing against people who have generation after generation of filmmakers in their families. Well, and it's the same, it's the same issue with the, uh, like with also like making a movie, like people don't want to make just a good movie anymore. It has to be an incredibly, incredibly profitable movie. Mm -hmm. It can't just be a beautiful work of art and a great, great movie. It has to be, has to like everything has to set new box office records or else studios consider it basically a failure and the same the same goes for like the people making them like you either have to be a like a a child of some other prodigy you have to be the child prodigy of a prodigy uh a reboot they're never as good (laughs) (laughs) oh no now i'm gonna think of now i'm gonna think of like Francis Ford Coppola's ch- like children as reboots. Like Sofia Coppola is like really like a just a reboot. Um, I <laughs> love her. Phenomenal. We love Sofia. Yeah, I love, love her. her. We love her. Please let me work with you, Sofia. You're yeah, amazing. I, think you like, I love like, her. I don't know Jaden Smith or something. Aw, I feel like Jaden Smith hasn't upset anyone yet. No, but just uh, like like he's being thrown in movies and stuff just because Will Will's killing it. Yeah. Uh, I love you, Jaden. I'm sorry. I don't know why I threw you under the bus like that. But like, that's the thing is like, that's like, that's who you're competing against is like, is either prodigies of prodigies, or people who are like, already years deep top of Mm -hmm. the craft. It's not there is no. Also, maybe Jaden Smith would be a much better actor if he weren't in movies like Gemini Man or whatever that was. What was the one he was in with his dad? 
Oh, I don't know. Just garbage I, movies. You're not giving them a chance. Let's talk about where I'm at in the trajectory of Will Smith movies. I just watched Hitch for the first time two days ago. <laughs> One of his finest Ooh. works to date. I mean, I I enjoyed myself once I just decided I wasn't going to turn it off. <laughs> once I just resigned myself to that. Um Cassie, thank you so much for coming on and telling us a story. This this is so cool. Thank you so me. much, Cassie. Yeah. Thank you. We're going to we're going to have you on for another episode so that you can just interrupt us constantly like we just did to you for yours. <laughs> um but and there'll be I'm going to find so many things to put on the socials, so friends, go follow the socials at uh, at shared pod on Instagram and Twitter. We'll have pictures of Francis. We'll have pictures of some of the people she worked with. We'll show you how pretty out. she was. We'll show you how pretty she was. We'll share a link to the little princess. Uh, we'll figure out what uh, type of ghost whisperer I am. Everyone is going to get their own car. Rip, if yeah, you could set that you up. You get a car. I'm going to give you all the things. And then, as always, uh, if you have any questions, corrections, or suggestions, you can send them to us at uh, sharedhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You nailed it. That right? Oh, my God. Thank goodness. <laughs> you, You're so good at this, Natalie. Uh, if only I consistently got the email address right, <laughs> even when logging into the email account. <laughs> Um, and uh, drop us, drop us uh, some dollar dollar bills, y'all. We got a Patreon. Over... Yeah, it's patreon.com slash arcade audio. Consider this episode our two weeks of free work. Uh, and now we've earned your money. So yes, please give it to the arcade audio network so that we can get fun things and merch and other fun things for you. Um and then, uh, as always, share, share you, later. you later. That's also going to be weird remote. Yep. <laughs> yep. Looking forward to hearing how that came. <laughs> <out>. <laughs>